Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen Hansen, and sitting a firestone's throw away from me is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Jen. I think there's literally one person right now that gets that joke, but hopefully by the end of this series, everybody will get the joke. If you don't, well, then you weren't listening. That's right. (laughs) It's a test. (laughs) So before we get into it, I just wanted to bring up something that that came up recently. It's a tiny update related to our Harry Potter saga, but not really. I'm really sad to report. I said that really happily. I'm really sad. (laughs) So sad. I am really sad to report that Helen McCrory died not long ago. She played Narcissa, and she's one of my favorite characters, at least in the fandom, not necessarily like canonically. But The Guardian did a a really sweet article about her, and she honestly seemed like a joy to be around. So if you care, you should definitely go check out that article and some of her work. And you said she was young, right? 54. Yeah, she, she died of cancer. Very young. We're losing some good Harry Potter actors. This has got to stop. It really, somebody needs to step in. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, today, I think we're both pretty fired up. I'm going to keep trying to do these really (laughs) awful puns about what we'll be be discussing in this episode. Do you want to say what it is and then we can kind of talk about some things before we get started? First of all, since none of you can see this, look at the t-shirt I'm wearing. <laughs> what? It says dragon enthusiast and it has a dragon mm. breathing fire with wings, a long neck. So we are going to talk about dragons, by the way. I wasn't just saying that to say that. <laughs> but if you don't know what a dragon is, let me enlighten you. On a broad scale, it is a fantastic serpent creature, most say of ancient times that existed in some form in a majority of cultures. And they could be an amalgamation. Some were reptiles, mammals, birds. The fascinating element, though, is that they were a universal symbol even before intercultural relationships were established. So a culture could be completely isolated and they developed their own origin dragon. It's one of those Collective unconscious, we'll talk a lot about that, aspects of our humanity, we think, because the dragon symbol seems to be universal in that way. So their function was to represent the primordial, the chaotic, and the powerful, and that develops later too, but that's the broad dragon. Jen and I are going to follow the evolution of the dragon from Europe specifically, and in their countries, in their mythos, their literature, and then we're going to follow it to America and their literature, and their contemporary media. I mean, today, American, well, fantasy, I should say, is just full of dragon folklore and dragon symbolism and dragon characters. And so because it's survived all this time, it's got to be pretty important. 
Do you want to tell them a little bit about how we're going to discuss each source? Okay, so we're going to cover each source with a brief introduction, a summary of that story, and then we'll sort of break into this discussion. And we're going to try to stick to three main topics. We, meaning mainly me, because I go off topic really quickly. So we're going to try to, we are going to try to stick to these three. One is the dragon's function in the story. Two is the symbol of the dragon. And three is the psychology and societal influences around the dragon figure, symbol, character, etc. In the beginning, there was dragon. And dragon was good. <laughs> Actually, that's not so far off. We are going to talk about Genesis, the creation myth, because there was supposedly a dragon there, as well as at the end of the world. And if your mind is blown right now, just assume it's going to be blown a few more times, because this pattern is going to happen quite a bit in Europe at the beginning. <laughs> We don't really count this as a source because I'm just going to mention a bunch of creation myths from Europe that have dragons in them because they're not quite literature. It's just myth. And I can very well mention a few dragons that are going to now evolve into what we call the Western dragon. So it's good to know the background of where these dragons are stemming from. Fun fact, if you want to know why we consider the dragons to be more serpent-like than anything else, the word dragon itself is Latin for serpent as well as the Greek word, which is draken. Hmm. And then we have a constellation, right? It all comes back. See? <laughs> it all, it's full circle Harry Potter. Wow, it's like these clues exist in all of our villains. <laughs> so yeah, our, our Draco constellation is actually based off of the Greek and a Roman serpent, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. Awesome. But first, I've they feel like the earliest mention of a dragon came from Mesopotamia. And that was Tiamat, and she was a goddess. Hmm. And she only shapeshifted into a dragon when she needed to battle the storm god, Marduk. Yeah. Yeah. Power. Yeah. She was there at the very beginning before heaven and earth. Hmm. Marduk, who did vanquish her, unfortunately, created heaven and earth from her body parts afterwards. What a nice dude. <gasps> Gotta love him. <laughs> that kind of ties into the introduction to dragons in Reign of Fire, which is that it's older than the dinosaurs. It's older than anything. Yeah. That's going to be a huge theme as well. We'll talk more about mm. dragons being there at the very beginning in creation. They're like the antithesis of God in many cases, which makes sense where we attribute them to being ancient and primordial they were always there mm. no shoot <laughs> good catch <laughs> in egypt i know egypt isn't quite europe but that's like the mesopotamian era so I, I count this one egypt had apep and it was a serpent of chaos and the underworld and what apep would do he would wait at the horizon in the underworld for the god ra the sun god ra every night would have to battle him in order to reemerge as the sun the next day so the egyptians often prayed for that defeat so that they could have sun which is masculine and feminine too yes indeed yes, we're talking about that too oh my god dragons are so fascinating <laughs> in the norwegian myths we have jormungandr ooh 
who was also a sea serpent, and he was cast into the ocean by Odin. Do you see the pattern here? Cosmic gods being like, you know, you're no good. You're a serpent. We're going to toss you to the underworld. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Here's your gift basket. Yeah, really. Like, have a good time down there. This one did. He drank up the entire ocean, and he grew so large that his body wrapped around Midgard. But he was later defeated by Thor, god of thunder. During Ragnarok, actually. Again, another apocalyptic yeah. scenario. When he defeated him, did it fill the ocean back up again? No, because wasn't Ragnarok at like the end of time? But maybe. I actually don't <laughs> <Okay>. know. <laughs> so he def defeated the dragon and then the world ended? No, it was just one of the creatures oh. that emerged from the underworld at the end mm. of time. I see. Then we get to the Greek mythologies, and this one's actually a family of dragons. It was really interesting. So Mother Gaia, the Mother Earth Gaia, Earth. begat a monster, and this was her last son. <laughs> get ready. Everybody hold on. Everybody begat something at this point. <laughs> but this one was apparently half man, half dragon, with 100 serpent heads. His name was Typhon, and he was cast mm. into Tartarus, which is the underworld of the Greece. By Zeus, another sun god, or god of hmm. thunder, whatever. <laughs> whatever. But before he died, he begat another two dragon children. Hmm. Laden, which I hadn't heard of before, but he's pretty famous for guarding the apple orchard of Hera. And they were magical golden apples. He was often depicted coiled around an apple tree. If that serpent around the tree image sounds familiar... We're going to see that in Genesis when we talk about the creation myth and the serpent tempter. Never heard of it. Nothing is original, I swear. <laughs> the Christians were like, or the Hebrews at the time would have been like, yeah, those Greeks had great stories. Let's just erase the name, fill in a new one. Yeah. It's all recycled, which is awesome. It is awesome. Oh, and he was defeated by Hercules. Yeah. Because who isn't? Are they ever not defeated? Do they ever just become buddies and hang out and drink a Coke or something? This is going to be iconic of the Western dragon. It is meant to be defeated. It's so sad. It is. It's sad. And we will mention a little bit of the Eastern dragon, only slightly, because we don't see too much of the Eastern dragon in our culture presently. But the Eastern dragon is the opposite of that. They are the benevolent nature, hmm. feminine. They're the complete opposite. But what you think of is really sad here. It was meant to be sad. They were meant to be the demonic and the antithesis of the good god. Mm. So none of them do survive, unfortunately. Sad. Or fortunately. I mean, depending on what symbolism you're identifying with here. No dragons were hurt in the making of this episode. Just FYI. <laughs> do you like snakes? Sorry, this is kind of off topic. I do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I never actually felt scared of them. Yeah, snakes are cool. Maybe snakes have evolved in our subconscious a little bit, at least in our natural subconscious in nature mm -hmm. anyway. And you know who else likes serpents and snakes? Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, it's not anywhere in my notes that we connect this to Harry Potter. This is just <laughs> happening in the moment. So we're just going to go with it. This is what I mean. Mythology heavily influences fantasy. So if it mm. all sounds familiar, this is exactly why. I love it. 
Okay, so the last child, sorry, the last serpent child here, whom you've probably heard of because it is also a word. It's Hydra. Oh. Not in the Hail Hydra from Marvel, but <laughs> the nine-headed snake dragon that when you cut off one head, three more or two more grow in its place. Mm. So if you remember Disney Hercules. Right. The serpent he battled was Hydra. Percy Jackson? Yes, they used that in Percy Jackson. Gotcha. I'm trying to think if they used it. I think they use it actually a lot now in fantasy media. Yeah. Because it's so fascinating, right? And the fact that we use it as a word meaning a problem that when you solve a part of it, a few more pop up. So it's like never ending. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting message because I don't know that I agree with it, but I get what, what I get it, you know. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, Hercules did figure out how to defeat it. Because if he hadn't, then we would have had a, a head-heavy snake by the end of this battle. <laughs> he cauterized it. Uh, every time he would chop off a head, he cauterized the neck so another one wouldn't grow in its place. Mm. And the ninth one, the main head, which was the ninth head, he had to smash under a rock. So I guess mm. the brain was located there. I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> so it means even if it seems really difficult and the problems keep growing... There is still a solution. Ah, okay. I can buy that. Eh. I'll buy it. Okay, last one. So sorry. This is taking longer than I thought. <laughs> but the the biblical dragon, right? What I just said is Genesis. On the fifth day of creation, God included the beasts of the sea. See, this I never knew. The beasts of the sea was, and a lot of people have this theory, is that it was the Leviathan. It was that first sea creature that lives at the depths of the ocean and Leviathan translated later into giant fish, to great serpent, and to dinosaur. Oh, interesting. Not Aquaman? <laughs> and Aquaman <laughs> was riding the Leviathan. Great. With his weird trident and <laughs> Fabio hair. And... Fabio hair, right. But interesting, dinosaur. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's probably why we get so many myths about sea creatures from the depths of the ocean has something to do with God's original creation that maybe evolved into an antagonistic force. And the theory is that Leviathan did develop into the devil dragon, which is noted in Revelation. At the end of days, in Revelation, there is a battle, which is phenomenal. This is so great. So Revelation says that from the sea, the Leviathan sort of became equal with God. He was living in the cosmos in, in a, like an omnipotent role, but he was the Antichrist. He was God's greatest enemy. And at the end of days, what happens is that he conjures his forces and God conjures his angels and there's a battle in heaven. So I'm going to, can I read just a tiny little passage? Because this is what I mean by yeah. like a big battle. So in the Bible, it reads, then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon and war broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, <laughs> the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> I mean, you can't see her, but she did that, like, explosion thing with her face. They get it. Interesting. So, 
this is a pattern, right? There's the malevolent devil dragon living in the underworld representing chaos. And they're there because they're the counterpart to the sun hero or their sun god. So at the beginning of creation, there was like a divergence, an evil and a good, even though evil probably Hmm. wasn't evil, it was more chaotic than anything. But there had to be some sort of order that eventually killed them off because order would prevail and humanity would continue. Hmm. And it it had to be the devil that was killed. This is just how they interpret it at the time, is that it would always be a malevolent force that needs to be defeated. But we're going to talk about how that's changed, how we even change that in our current stories, right? What the devil does in our stories (laughs) is very different than that. A lot of different variations with that, too. And they're not quite fire-breathing or winged creatures yet in myth. Mm. That That's going to come later with literature. Gotcha. 500 BC to the first century. That's all of what I just covered. So what would Damn. that be? I think that would be old. That would be old. That's old. Really old. Old <laughs> stuff, people. No, we got that out of the way. We're entering the Middle Ages, Ooh. which is like the first century And Christianity becomes a big thing. And Christians, of course, need the symbol of a dragon as the devil to spread Mm. their word. It seems effective. It does. Poor dragon. So we're going to move into the next, I guess, main source, right? Which would be Beowulf, which, as you said, is the... What did you call it? Me- medieval or Middle Earth? Ooh, I like that. <laughs> it does contribute to Middle Earth. Middle Ages? Middle Ages, times, thank you. All of Mid- that. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about Beowulf. So the version we used is from 2000, right? Publication by Seamus Henney, if anybody's interested. And that's an interesting version of that book because it has the old English that it was written in on the left-hand side and the new English is on the right. So you get to kind of follow along, even though you can't read a single word of the old English. I read it. It was super easy. <laughs> Jen is, of course, brilliant in all languages, so it was oh, an yes. effort on her part. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I like that. I like that it shows us how far we've come as far as our English language development. Yeah. Because Beowulf was one of the first English texts to be written in the old English, which would become our English language. Mm. And I think they use Germanic and Latin alphabets to sort of mm. design that. Makes sense. 725 AD, written in England. There's a movie about it. Don't watch it. That's what I've been told. Everyone I've talked to about it has not given it good reviews. But when it came out, it was a big deal. So wasn't it? I don't I don't know. Well, if you've seen Beowulf the movie, let us know what you thought. <laughs> So we're talking about England at this time. This is where the literature is coming from. And England had been first occupied by the Celts. So you get a little bit of the Celtic influence. Then by the Romans. So you get the Roman influence. And then the Germanic people started emerging, which would become the Anglo-Saxons. And the story itself takes place in 6th century Denmark, which would have been around the same time St. Augustine would have developed Christianity as the dominant religion in England. So good timing, people. It's like they had an agenda. No. That's crazy talk. So the story is indeed a parable of diminishing the last of the pagans. Lovely. I mean, all of the literature is going to be a parable for that because 
this is what happens when a new age emerges and all of the lingering dragons have to be vanquished in order for that new thought to sort of spread out. I don't think it has to work that way, personally, but apparently I'm wrong. (laughs) But I mean, it doesn't have to now, but it did for sure. And that's where I think the dragon psychology comes from. Those things of our deep that we just want to keep there, right? Just Mm. stay down there. We will not confront you. Or if we do have to confront you, we'll just kill you before we actually understand (laughs) you. Right. That's much easier. So would you like to hear a summary of this beautiful parable? Yes, please. (laughs) Tell us about what it is about. This is only a section of the book, by the way. I mean, there is quite a few quests that Beowulf goes on, but this is his final quest. No spoilers. But he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Having been a beast slayer and then ruler of a kingdom for 50 years, Beowulf now must battle a dragon. Emerged from his cave after 300 years, the unnamed dragon acts on rage after a cup is stolen from his treasure hoard. Beowulf prepares for battle by creating an iron shield and girding his historic sword. Once at the dragon's cave, however, all but one of his men flee in terror from the dragon's fiery breath and impenetrable skin. During battle, Beowulf is burned, his sword is cracked, and despite a well-placed belly strike by the younger ally, the dragon leaves Beowulf mortally wounded. Before succumbing to death, however, Beowulf uses his dagger to deliver a final blow to the dragon's flank. The dragon dies... Beowulf gives some final instructions about gold distribution and how he wants his funeral to go. <laughs> and then Beowulf dies. And the young man, who is the only one who didn't run away, is given the kingdom to rule. It's very um, upbeat, happy sort of story, you know? I mean, didn't you feel good while you read it? Honestly. <laughs> it <was> so good. <laughs> and the moral of the story is if you... Uh, are loyal to the end you get your own kingdom which is in maleficent right isn't that sort of you're right that's absolutely the same scenario in maleficent (sighs) and he goes crazy instead interesting yeah that's a really yeah Hmm. okay so shall we discuss beowulf and his unnamed dragon we call it tim tim done cool (laughs) so tim's function You know, in the overall Beowulf story, he rules first as a conquering hero. He's really young, really strong, able to handle anything. And his reward for overcoming all these obstacles is being given a kingdom. It's been 50 years since anything bad has happened. In the book, it says he's pretty elderly already, probably going out. In my interpretation is that the dragon was just an excuse for this great hero to have a final act. The death is coming from... A motive of revenge from both sides. The dragon who's pissed off after having a cup stolen, a tiny cup, (laughs) out of this huge horde is stolen. And the dragon emerges just for that. And the king, who's really angry only when the dragon burns his own house down, is when he's like, okay, God is punishing me. The last thing that I can do in my life is go vanquish this dragon because now I'm after revenge. So it's like an equal revenge, revenge, and it makes sense that they kill each other in that instance, where one is considered heroic for dying and the other one was considered a plague. Interesting. I think that's really interesting also because cups have been used a lot in a symbolic way. 
it's a big thing that's in tarot. It's a big thing when it comes to art historians. So I think it's really interesting that it's a little cup. It's small, but it probably symbolizes a lot. And I think how it's stolen is important, too. It was a beggar. He needed to find some sort of money, and he happened to wander into a dragon's hoard. Yeah, there are strange dynamics. I mean, I want to be on the dragon's side, and I can't be because of that. Yeah, the function in most of these stories for the dragon is to be the bad guy. Right. Because somebody needs to be. But when you say it's a metaphor for paganism, then you feel like awful because the dragon then <laughs> is representing all of these people who just happen to worship multiple gods instead of one. But when you say it's a dragon, then suddenly it's okay. Yeah. Because dragons are meant to be killed. That's like ob- obfuscating it, right? Isn't that what that means? Changing it into something that people will accept and everybody, for the most part at that time, knowing what that is. But it's much easier to say kill the dragon than it is to say kill the pagan. <laughs> I'm just repeating what you said. Exactly. <laughs> but, I love I, you yeah. said it so much better than I did. But yeah, if you had no context and you were just reading the story as a story, you're right. The dragon becomes just as evil as anything. And it's not really a character, right? We don't hear thoughts from the dragon. Right. We get a little bit of what it looks like. For example, I wrote down this passage that he's an old harrower of the dark. He's driven to hunt out hordes to guard heath and gold through age-long vigils, though to little avail. This scourge of the people had stood guard on that stoutly protected underground treasury until the intruder unleashed its fury. So it is, it's a very flat villain. There's nothing complex about this dragon. It's an animal, you know, like it may be a prehistoric or a primordial animal, but it's still kind of just an animal. And so I think that's what makes it harder also, because that feels very true to humans throughout history, which is taking something that could be natural and demonizing it, sometimes literally making it into like a Satan like figure to be killed because it's not what we deem to be natural at that time. It's very aggravating. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that helped in their survival as far as new civilizations go, though, to have something symbolic of that so they could progress. Whether their society was worthy to progress is a different story. But the fact that they did, they would need symbols like this to go forward. Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not so much wanting to change history, but understanding how they use certain things in history and how that relates to how we use them now. As a quick example, if you ask somebody to think about this dragon that you just described and then think about the dragon from How to Train Your Dragon, you're going to have very different perceptions, but they're basically the same. They come from the same place. Yeah. The evolution of the dragon. Speaking of evolution, though, if we're talking about symbology next, are we ready to talk a little bit about Tim's symbolic (laughs) role in Fable? Yes. That is like actually what all my notes are. So yes. (laughs) Oh, good. Good. And I don't even know if this goes under symbolism, but I, I just noted that some of the most iconic characteristics of the dragons are birthed from Tim. This is the first Mm. time, at least in our language, in the English language, I should say, we get something like the cave dweller, the treasure guardian, fire breather, and the wings, right? Aren't those all four pretty characteristics of our Western dragon? Yeah, almost exactly. When somebody says a dragon is protecting their treasure, the first one I think of is Smog. Smog from The Hobbit, which is written by Tolkien. When I was reading Beowulf and it talks about guarding the horde, I thought that was 
the treasure protector being something that's maybe originated in this. Maybe it's originated earlier? I don't know. There was a little bit of Laden, the Greek dragon Laden, who was set mm-hmm. to protect the apple orchard, but that was above ground. Right. That was in the evolution of things. Those were the serpents that lived in trees, and that's where the psychological mm. fear of serpents in a tree came from. But this is the first time we see a guardian underneath. Is the one in Beowulf like the one in The Hobbit, where it has taken its treasures from others? According to the text, because the treasure came from another civilization that killed itself off, which these people lived in a golden age, and they became so treasure hungry, it said they pillaged and slaughtered each other. That doesn't sound familiar. Is that how the golden age (laughs) ends, really, every time? Because I was curious about that. How do dragons come upon their horde? Is it that they go and find things and then they like treasure it like a bird? That's very bird-like, right, when you build your nest. These early ones do not do that. They are existing treasures that they're drawn to because they're creatures of the dark. Mm. They're drawn to things like that, to the past civilizations, to the past. They are garters of the past, whether it be theirs or not. So ironic. It's just, it's a lot of weird symbols put together in an order I wouldn't expect. This is symbolizing the past, but we must kill it. (laughs) It's like, well, yeah, but I mean, we want to remember it, right? And it's like, we just must kill it. Yeah, I think different interpretations will change the evolution of the dragon because those questions are asked more and more. Good. Because in Beowulf, when the dragon is vanquished, that treasure comes up. It it is redistributed so that civilization is not lost. When we talk about psychology here, we're going to talk about the tyrant holdfast. All of those treasures that have been guarded and kept selfishly with the dragon is now released into civilization so it can grow. Flourish. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening here in Beowulf. Interesting. What do you think? This kind of literature is a little bit over my head. So it sounds like I'm prompting questions to you so that we can hear it. But I'm genuinely asking because I don't, Some of, like I said, some of it's pretty far over my head. But that's it. We could interpret it differently. Like right here, right now, whether it says that on the page, maybe we think it's something different. No, I think you speak for everyone. No, I don't want to. This is just what this is just what <laughs> just the kidding. text is saying. I say it, we can interpret it however we want to. Well, in that case, I would like to say I understand that they are doing this on purpose and the dragon is meant to be the bad guy, but like they're so mean to him. <laughs> they call him like really awful things and it's kind of messed up. Like I don't I don't like it. <laughs> Is that okay to say? Yeah, it is. Because now we realize that what they used to think of as darkness and evil is not how we perceive that darkness and evil today. Yeah. We know the value of seeing the those good dualities that exist there for good reasons. Yeah. I don't know what that's about. I don't know enough about the world or history, but that it, it's painted so black and white in these stories. And that it's more nuanced now. I don't know if it actually is more nuanced now or that's just something that's popular in our time to read about, write about, talk about. And that's a good question. I guess early civilization, though, was pretty impressionable because their classism was based on if you're higher up, you get to know things, you get to learn things, read, for goodness sake, learn how to read. Mm -hmm. And everyone sort of below (laughs) that.
there was no evidence saying that this dragon exists underground. But when bad guys enter your kingdom, then act by what we tell you and kill them. Just do it because there's a dragon. And they're like, oh, we know the dragon story. Let's go and kill the dragons. Hmm. It's not their fault. I mean, right. this. I think this is just how civilizations worked in this hierarchy. I don't know. And now that it's not like that anymore, we can all have our own thoughts. Yay. <laughs> Rational, <laughs> logical, scientific thoughts. Or not. There's also not having those. Which is still mind-boggling to me, but yeah, exactly. I, You know, I, this is going to sound really weird, but metaphorically, if I were to interpret this in a modern time and make it a house, this Tim is like the creepy house that you're afraid to walk by at night when you were a kid. And the house next door to it is something you'd see in a really nice house, basically. Cookie cutter. Very, like, normal and solid and a good foundation and clean. And the story is telling us, you know, obviously you know which one is bad, right? You can tell because look at it. And my reaction to that is, that's not my experience. <laughs> and... I would go into the haunted house, thank you very much, rather than the other one, because that, for me, is is the darkness. Exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting it. We're lucky enough to be in an age where we can be individuals and develop our own opinions on things and not have to believe in mass, I would say now, religion and even politics. Like We're allowed to have differing experiences and differing opinions. And we see that represented in literature and in stories and in any sort of content, really. Right. Symbolism is definitely more um, multifaceted. Perfect. Great. Multifaceted. <laughs> it really is, though. It really is. It's hard to say that one thing means one thing now. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Exactly. And that's what these stories do. These stories are like, this is what this is because this is what it is. And my modern brain is like... But he's just a little dragon and he's an animal and like you're projecting, <laughs> you know. <You're> projecting. <laughs> yeah, this is why I think it's interesting. Both Beast and King had very similar motives. They were just angry and they were killed mm. for it. I mean, how is that not similar? Very true. But at the time, it would have been a heroic thing. The Knight's Age had this honor system where it was kind of, it's kind of like Klingons in Star Trek. There's so many similarities hmm. here. I'm just saying where <laughs> it was normal to boast, to be egotistical, to go on quests where you exaggerate what actually happened later. You're rewarded hmm. with treasure, hmm. with land, with status. You're considered blessed by God. You know, all of these things are given to you for this 2% of men here. And they're the ones telling the stories. That is very Klingon. Interesting. So Beowulf would fit that category for sure. Gotcha. Do you want to talk about light and dark with the dragon? Ooh, yeah. Can I read this one line before you talk about it? Then back to the horde he would dart before daybreak to hide in his den. See, I like that they call it a den also, because that's very bird-like and bear-like. I guess it's more bear-like than it is bird-like. Yeah, this is still the dragon of the underworld. I had one sentence worth of evidence here, but the whole flight thing, it wasn't quite clear if the dragon ever took flight or if he was destroying villages. The fiery breath is very clear. It mentions that quite a few times. But the only time it said flight in any way was winged creature. Mm -hmm. But it's safe to say that I think this dragon has evolved 
from just crawling on, on its belly like a serpent to actually hitting a lot of ground in one day before it goes back to its horde. And that's that's the theme we'll be looking at, obviously, throughout, is the attributes that are attached to the dragon and how those differ and maybe maybe not why, but like what that does to the story. So we have the wings, we have the flight, we have, you know, can they go out in the daylight? Can they only go out at night? Can they only go out in the daylight? There's a lot of like night and day stuff that goes on with them. And then there's skin, and which sounds really gross, but it's like doing a paper about a breed of dog. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what do you think about the day and night thing or when they choose to come out? It's interesting. For the most part, they seem like they're very large creatures. Otherwise, they would have been able to just like kill them. It would make sense instinctually that they only go out at night. They're more like bats in that way. And we see that in How to Train Your Dragon. We see a dragon being associated with bat behavior. But then wasn't there another one where it could only it couldn't go out at night? There was something about light and dark with rain of fire. Rain of fire. Something to do with the dawn was the optical time, but I can't remember for what reason now. Dawn or dusk? I guess it's the same thing. Dusk. Dusk. No, but you're right. It, it was dusk. It was sunset. Dusk was the only time frame where you could go out safely and not be afraid of a dragon. But I think in Dragon Slayer, or, oh, God, we've seen so many dragon things. They all. Oh, yeah, you're right. Where it only came out at night? Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes, it was that one too. Oh, and I think Smog came out at night only too. But then you have Dragonheart, and that dragon goes out during the day. This is true. This may not sound interesting, <laughs> but it actually really is because there's like these legends associated with dragons in all of these stories. Like you were talking about myth, like a whole myth mythos behind creature. It's not like a dinosaur in that way. T-Rex doesn't have a mythos around it. It's a T-Rex. Even if we don't know what they actually look like, we know what it is, you know? <laughs> Whereas in all these dragon stories, you have these like sometimes very elaborate backstories like in Dragonheart, and, and like Smog in some ways, right? Because he was involved with wars that happened. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. That's a whole other topic, too, about what the dragon is guarding. And it's, it's more of what's being guarded that causes war than the dragon itself sometimes. Mm -hmm. Because in cases like Beowulf and The Hobbit, they're just the protectors. The treasure itself is what's starting or antagonizing war among men but it's only the dragon that seems to escalate it to thousands of deaths at a time <laughs> so they're just adding to the fire and i i one more thing and then I'll, this dragon and then we're gonna talk about some other ones in our sources i keep getting like this theme of gluttony and i think that that's a really good tag to add to it especially with the idea of christianity and paganism and all those things there's a real sense of gluttony where it, it collects and it's big and it's animalistic in that way where it just it'll just eat forever it'll just take all your treasure forever like it has to be stopped because it's gluttony is going to destroy us all yeah and i don't know if this is the time to talk about that but the dragon psychology theory of both jung and joseph campbell have a name for that mm. But we maybe we'll talk about it with Smog because he's very similar. I mean, he acts very similar to the Beowulf dragon. So cool. it, it has everything to do with that. So maybe we'll, we'll wait to talk about the psychological aspect until we get to Smog. That's cool because I, I do definitely want to talk about the dragon in the St. George story as well because that was an interesting one. 
what, oh, one of the other, I guess we didn't, I forgot to mention that, it was fire, fire breathing. Either it's out of the mouth or it's out of the nose or there's no fire. Right. They all seem to have little differences with that, which I think is also like, okay, cool. Why? <laughs> Why did you make this choice? <laughs> oh, it's so fascinating because tracing back to the serpent, the fears of the serpent are always going to be the poisonous bite. Mm-hmm. We see the poisonous vapor later and then finally the fire breathing. So all of that is back to the snake. Mm. And then the vulnerabilities are included there, too. Like, this dragon had impenetrable scales. Snakes really didn't, but the fact that you can make a snake's hide just as hard as an iron sword, right? that the sword can't even penetrate it, wasn't true before. So now that it's evolved to be unpenetrable, the only exposed spot is now its belly because snakes slithered, right? This was the part of themselves that they always kept to the ground. Right. And Beowulf is able to like stab it in its flank where it's the most soft. Mm. All of those attributes of the reptile are definitely being taken with the dragon. Right. Is there more that you want to talk about with Beowulf, Tim the dragon? I think that's all for Tim. So why don't we make a leap to the 11th and 12th centuries? How about that? We are going to meet a fella. His name is St. George. That's his first name, Saint. It's a very common name. Mm-hmm. If you see our street signs, you know, San Mateo, San Juan, <laughs> San Jose. Tell us about St. George, will you? To begin with, he wasn't even the original character. It was never St. George. What do you mean? Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> It evolved from actually one of the Greek serpent stories, either Leiden or Typhon. But it started in the country of Georgia. The story itself is untraceable, but that's where the first record of a knight who's defeating a dragon who is eating children comes from, I should say. Good stuff. It has no specific kingdom. It has no specific name to the knight. But after the death of St. George, who was actually a Roman soldier and his death was in 303 AD, Hmm. the story became attributed to him when his death and his sainthood became more popular. And that wasn't until the 13th century because the story itself moved among the Romans Hmm. and then among the Christian aristocracy. And there's no way to know how it happened either. I think the dragon symbol was just always popular. Hmm. and survived all that time but christianity and spreading christianity was still a big deal so any story that had the dragon was an opportunity to fill in the blank and saint george would have been like those roman soldiers that would have been like i praise you for what you've done (laughs) so let's tell your story and let's involve a dragon in it because that's how we can make you immortal Hmm. so the location of the story okay so the location of the story then it does transfer to libya in the 13th century so that's where the hero is cast as St. George. During this time, the story spreads among Eastern Roman empires and then among Christian crusaders. It becomes popular in Middle Age and Renaissance art. And then today, England claims St. George as their saint. So they tell mm. the story on his feast day. Is that when we feast on his flesh? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Makes it nice and crispy. A <laughs> couple hundred years dead, we'll do that. <laughs> So yeah, this is why St. George is super popular as far as like kids stories and saint stories and dragon stories, all of that. They check every box. Hmm. Do you want to give us a brief summary of the story? I have one here, indeed. So this is when the story is set in the kingdom of Libya. At least this version of the story sets it there. 
So the kingdom is being terrorized by a dragon with poisonous breath. To get the dragon to stop, the king provides him with livestock to feed on. And when the livestock runs out, the king then creates a lot in which a child is sacrificed to the dragon every day. Every day. That's bonkers. But it's the young children, right? Under 13, which is mm-hmm. worse somehow. I don't know why, but it is. <gasps> I mean, how could you have enough kids to be doing that for that long, right? Unless it wasn't that long. But wouldn't you want to feed them bigger children so that it's less hungry? Maybe if you fed it a larger child, it'd be every other day <laughs> instead of like a baby every single day. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we have a, a meteor child here if you would like to forego a meal tomorrow. <laughs> a child under the age of 13 is not going to be the same. I can't be the same amount of meat as a sheep. I mean, maybe it is, but it doesn't seem like it would be. I really agree, especially if the kid turns out to be like, what, three years old? That's like barely going to yeah. pick your tooth, you know? Exactly. Anyway. Eventually, the king's daughter is selected. Upon the princess's day of sacrifice, however, a Roman knight rides up and he must help the damsel in distress. So he takes up his spear and begins the battle. Observing the fight, the princess witnesses a divine light coming from the knight, and that keeps him shielded against the dragon's fire. Finally, the knight stabs the beast under its left wing and it becomes temporarily disabled. The knight asks the princess to use her belt to take the not-quite-dead dragon back to her kingdom. Once in front of the king, I know, that's a detail that's also transcended the story, which also doesn't make sense, but maybe we'll talk about that. Once in front of the king, the knight is offered treasure, but he refuses it and instead asks for the kingdom's conversion to Christianity. They agree, and the knight kills the dragon. So, real quick... Plus one point for not asking for a woman as a prize. Minus one point for trying to convert people to a religion that they maybe aren't interested in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was telling Jen earlier that I feel like I've read other versions of the St. George story where it wasn't so nice, where he did demand the maiden and the way he converted the kingdom was not in a heroic, chivalrous way at all. So it seems like most of the stories that were on the internet, as well as my children's collection here, had a rated E version of the St. George and Dragon story, which sounds better. I mean, it sounds much better this way, for sure. And if this is the rated E version, it gets pretty gruesome. A lot of people die and there's all kinds of things that happen, which we can talk about. The the dragon has like special abilities in this one. And of course, all the children. Do you want to talk about some of that? (laughs) (laughs) There was a couple of things that stuck out. The big one, I guess, would be that it has poisonous fumes. It can like spread a poisonous gas everywhere. And do you want to elaborate on that? Because it's weird. I had a lot of thoughts about that. The other dragon who could do that in Mythos was Hydra. Hydra was poisoning a kingdom before it was defeated by Hercules. And that's why Hercules needed to go and defeat it, because it was killing people by the thousands with vapor rather than fire. Mm. And the vapor was almost worse because you can hide from fire, whereas this kingdom couldn't hide anywhere. If the vapor got to them, just dead. It was that was it. It's not like they were houses were sealed with like top-notch sealant i mean that's all like mud and stuff you know they don't have gas masks okay like 
and they can't just leave their livestock. That's how they eat or how they make money so they can eat. It's brutal. And then the fact that the dragon is intelligent enough to blackmail them with that. Do you want to say something about that? It's awesome. He's he's a devious one. I have respect for this one because he's like playing mind games with these people. It's messed up. And this is the first time we see a somewhat of a dialogue coming from the dragon. I don't know if this is true of all versions of mm. the story, but this one had a little addition where the king comes out and sort of negotiates with the dragon <laughs> saying that, OK, we can't all die here. If you would stop, we can feed you. Right. The dragon is hungry. He's doing all this blackmailing so he can have easy food and it says like with clicks and noises it says oh i'll take your livestock first but when that runs out i want a child (laughs) i don't know if he sounds like that but yes i understand (laughs) no he would have been yeah probably deep voiced and serene about it calm this is what i want (laughs) the other are are we ready to move on with the poisonous fumes please do stop me okay great (laughs) The other thing was black flame. Mm. It talks about him having a black flame. I don't. Does it say him? I don't know. Gender is another thing that we'll have to look at at some point. But and I remember when we were watching Dragon Slayer, you mentioned Saint George's story, and I can see a lot of similarities between the two, especially with the tying up a person to be sacrificed for the, almost for the dinosaur, for the dragon to come out at night to consume and then go back into its hole in the ground. It has a lot of crossover with this story for me, or at least this version. But there's, yeah, there's the king's daughter, right? And she's 14 in this. And she's worried every day that, you know, more people are dying every day. And that's a theme we again see in Dragon Slayer with the king's daughter. And it, it was done surprisingly well in Dragon Slayer, in how that plays out. I mean, not in the end, but in the moment, it is. Yeah. It's either this or get gassed. That's basically what the blackmail is, right? That's when you're, like, hoping somebody will come invade. Be like, you take the kingdom. You, you deal with it. I'm out. I'll just be a good citizen. I'll raise whatever I can, you know? Yeah, exactly. The dragon's function in the story, again, is still it's still representing paganism. That hasn't changed. And in this one, it's very obvious because they actually blatantly say it. The reason St. George is, is cast as the knight, because we don't actually hear his name. Like, his name is not written in the story. It's the knight. And it's everybody else who has attributed St. George to this role. Because at the end, the agenda is to convert. It's not to kill the dragon. It's not to save the kids. I mean, it is. But it's, I mean, <laughs> the writers are very conscious that by the end, this is the lesson to be learned. Right. So I thought it was interesting that the detail of the princess witnessing the knight's vanquish is because mm-hmm. there's an inner light coming from him that's protecting him from both the vapor and the fire. Because hmm. think about it. Nobody in the kingdom has yet to even like mark the dragon. They they are not able to get close enough to even try to like scrape him. Hmm. And here comes St. George who has been – even though historically that's inaccurate, he has been knighted. He is fighting for kings and cities that all believe in Christianity and are spreading Christianity. That's their task and their quest. So he has been endowed with God's inner light. Interesting. So obviously he's going to have defenses against the dark evil traits of the dragon, including being able to withstand fire and poison. Because otherwise he wouldn't be able to get close enough. Interesting. And I think the passage... 
if I can read the passage really quick, because this yeah, is how like, weird it gets. Through the deadly fumes, the princess could see his face shine out, and she saw that it was pale, yet lighted up by some radiance that shone from within. As he thrust at the dragon, this radiance grew greater, so that at last it was like the light of the sun. Hmm. So here comes yeah. the sun god defeating the dragon. Right. Yet again. Interesting. So what do you, yeah, what do you think about that, how it ends, about using her belt, out of all things, to, like, guide it back to the kingdom and making a show of, if you don't convert, I'm not going to kill the dragon. That's total bull. <laughs> I can just picture, if anybody did, like, an in-depth movie of this, I could picture him lecturing, or preaching, I should say, on a soapbox saying that. Obviously, the dragon came to your kingdom because you're all pagans and you don't believe in the one true God. I have come along at the right moment to save your princess. And I think God will spare you if you all convert and I will make sure the beast will never bother you again. It is a very heroic knightly tale for that reason. Awful. It, I mean, yeah, it is. But maybe the kingdom was also, like you said, it was at this point where we're all going to die if we don't. Totally. We've lost kids. We've lost life. We can't survive anymore. That's what makes it awful. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. It's the one time you're hoping people are actually good to be good instead of just trying to convert you to something. That would make me less interested in your religion. Interesting. If you gave me an ultimatum between living or dying, it's very, isn't that like, inquisition-y if you don't convert you'll die survival that's not a great way to convert people in my opinion it works apparently but that's got to damage your soul yeah and it's coming from an ingenuine place it's not it's not even a savior it's somebody who was being kind who saves your life but asks for a price psychologically damaging in that way because you are indebted to them and or at least in your morality you think you are and on a sidebar, I don't know how I feel about him not killing it completely <laughs> and taking it down. Oh, yeah. Like, that's even more. That's crazy. I'd be like, bro, what is your problem? What are you doing? In almost every story, he makes the princess do it, too. He's like, give me your belt. Let me attach it to him. Now you drag the dragon down to your kingdom. You're absolutely right. If he was any kind of good person, he would have just killed the dragon said are you okay ma'am great i'm gonna be on my way so yeah this one ends in a, in a tough sort of way it's not just killing the dragon but it's killing the belief of a different kingdom it's a really good story though i mean it sucks but it's good you know what i mean <laughs> like fun to read yeah or uh maybe not fun but enriching yeah there we go this is probably the source that brings about that sacrifice trope this is the first time we're seeing the innocent sacrifice to the dragon which will carry on also in many other versions. So slowly but surely, we're getting all the elements here of the dragon lore. Is there more you want to talk about with St. George? Let me see. Jorge? And then I killed the dragon, <laughs> except I had to convert first. Híjole, it was so hard. That is the New Mexican accent. You're welcome. I do have like a conclusion, sort of. Again, these are coming from the era of the chivalrous knight. The metaphor here is the new Christian heroes defeating the old pagan ways. But after the 1400s, there was actually a huge absence of any sort of dragon tales. Almost 400 years worth, actually. 
they theorized that writers didn't want to touch the dragon because it was so associated with the devil and it couldn't be seen by the Western world as anything else than the devil. So maybe it felt like it had been used up. I'm not really sure because I, I could see a lot of potential in that, but yeah, it wasn't brought up. Not until Tolkien, actually, in The Hobbit. And that wasn't until 1937. That's a lot of time. Hmm. They were like, you know what? St. George ruined it. He ruined it. We got to wait. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an equivalent today where, you know, we've talked like, ma- zombies. <laughs> because the big joke is like, oh, my God, not another zombie movie, right? We have used up zombies. We get what they mean, especially in an p- apocalyptic, fear-driven society. We get what zombies mean. Right. So I think it's a similar notion for the dragons at this time. Like, we get what the dragon hmm. is. We get that the devil is lingering in our caves because, you know, paganism will always be there. But we Christians are now, we're on top now, so we don't have to deal with that anymore. Maybe that's what that is. And Tolkien, he was a Christian, right? He was. C.S. Lewis, that group of right. Christian males who wrote fantasy. Interesting. It took another white christian man to bring it back to the world i actually really do respect tolkien of course and totally c.s lewis for sure but you're right it's the same demographic both english right and religious of course (laughs) no it's important (laughs) they're both english (laughs) they are yes so sorry they are english (laughs) interesting i wonder if anybody if anybody were to question them like what are you i wonder if they would say english or christian first like if i if Mm. i ask you like what are you what's the first thing you say I would say female, actually. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, say a second yeah. thing. What other than female? What are you? Um, white. <laughs> see, see what I mean? It's interesting to see naturally where our associations fall. I'm thinking right. theirs would have been English even before Christian. Is my theory interesting? Anyway, what were we talking about? Hobbit. I don't know. <laughs> are that, we talking about the Hobbit? That's where we're going next, right? So I think now we're going to talk about the infamous smog from The Hobbit, (laughs) which was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien, I mean, he was heavily influenced by what we just read, too. I mean, heavy from Beowulf. He used Norse mythology. There was a dragon in Norse tales, Fafnir, and he was the son of a dwarf king who was given a golden ring, which transformed him into a dragon. So if any of that sounds familiar, not any of it, none of it sounds familiar whatsoever. Rings? No. But it's been what? It's been like 500 years. So nobody's going to be like, oh, that sounds like the Icelandic tale when there's this guy that did this. Yeah, nobody's going to do that when Mm. they read Tolkien's work unless they study languages or myth. So I'm hearing it's okay to plagiarize as long as enough time goes by. Yep, that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind. Just anybody who wants to do that. I would say 10 years. That's just hundreds of years. <laughs> a decade. That's all you need. <laughs> but anyway, so smog is definitely birthed from these other dragons already. Um, I was wondering if, because I haven't read The Hobbit yet, if you could tell me a summary. I can indeed do that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Actually, you don't need to have read the entire Hobbit book to know. We just read a few pages from the book where Smog is introduced and basically dies off. But if you do want to read something, read The Hobbit. It's good. Agreed. Anyway, summary. Summary. So Tolkien's famous dragon, Smog, is guarding the treasure of the ancient dwarf king. 
and the protagonist, Bilbo Baggins. The underestimated hobbit with a ring of invisibility is sent to steal treasure under the dragon's nose. It does not go well, (laughs) but before Smog unleashes his anger on the town below, he and Bilbo share a sort of a -a tete-a-tete that introduces some complexities into our dragon, which we hadn't really seen before. And I actually, I want to read out loud two dialogues just to give you an idea of how he fits more into the trickstery archetype. Yeah. So this is the dragon. Well, thief, I smell you and I feel your air. I hear your breath. Come along, help yourself again. There is plenty and to spare. My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are swords. My claws, spears. The shock of my tail, a thunderbolt. My wings, a hurricane. And my breath, death. And my words, dramatic. And riddle-like, because it sounds... Interesting. <laughs> when you put it in a riddle form. Exactly. <laughs> Bilbo doesn't, he doesn't end the conversation well, and I forget how exactly that happened, but Smog is pretty upset by the end because he's not able to actually find Bilbo because he's wearing the ring of invisibility, right? Right. So Smog begins to burn the town down. He's just super upset. But luckily, a bowman who is in the book, it says he's descended from a lord is told by a bird that Smaug is vulnerable on the hollow of his left breast. And that's the second time we get under the wing sort of vulnerable spot in the dragon. So the bowman shoots him there with a black arrow and Smaug dies. I do think this is the first time we're seeing a trickster mm. dragon, which is similar to the archetype of a trickster devil. We've seen the devil be trickster before, but we hadn't quite seen the dragon fill that role because you're right. The dragon up until now has been beastly. It's more like a reptile and brainless and it gets angry really quick for no reason. Smog <laughs> does that, mm-hmm. but the fact that he actually taunts and enjoys riddles and riddle deciphering and riddle making, it makes him more complex, more like a trickster. He's not shady enough to be a con man, con dragon. And he, his motives are very much like the previous dragons, which is that he found a treasure and he's laid claim to it. Right. It's kind of a combination of Beowulf and, and George, right? The only thing that I can think maybe differs a little bit is that he... Kind of like a cat. He like plays with his food before he eats it because people attempt to steal the treasure in the past. It sounds like he lives for these conversations before he destroys them. Like it's okay for him to have these riddles because that's the only thing that entertains him. That is very cat-like. You're very right about that. And Tolkien's, some of the more famous quotes of Tolkien come from these scenes because he says something like, no dragon can resist the fascination of riddle talk and of wasting time trying to understand it. And this is the effect that dragon talk has on one that is inexperienced. Bilbo, of course, ought to have been on his guard, but Smaug had rather an overwhelming personality. But in the end, he's very short-tempered. If he was any sort of clever dragon, he would have had more strategy there other than just tearing down the town when he gets angry Mm. enough. He's a juvenile still. Ah, that's a good way of putting it. Mm. Anything else about his, like, function in the story? The hoarding thing. That was basically my note. It kind of reminds me, and it also does not remind me at all, of the dragon in Shrek, (gasps) where it has that quality of... No matter what, I'm going to destroy you. Mm. If you try to take what's mine, 
but then it completely changes later in Shrek. So it's not oh. I'm not adding very much. <laughs> you should keep talking. <laughs> Do you think we can have a conversation about dragon psychology here? Yeah. It's the same theory by two different psychologists. So once we hear it, I think we'll apply it to every dragon after this as well. That's awesome. Yes, please. There's, I think there's two psychological roles that Jung, this is Carl Jung, excuse me, the psychologist. Psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst, Carl Jung, and then the professor, Joseph Campbell. Basically, our two boys. Like, you have Campbell, I have Jung. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's because they know their stuff. We're going to bring them up all the time. Woo. <laughs> and you could probably say more about what Jung says here with dragons. Naturally, I found what Joseph Campbell to be a little bit more interesting to me anyway. Yeah. But Joseph Campbell brings up the archetypical role of the tyrant holdfast, that the dragon is representing the ruler of a golden age or a once mighty power that now guards the remnants of a pastime with selfish fury. And this is a plague of civilization when the old refuse to die off for the better. I mean, that sounds awful, but when they're not willing to give what they've learned in their life to pass down their knowledge, that the civilization will suffer for it because they're acting selfishly and it takes the new generation to sort of kill them off just because they won't give up anything. So he calls this the tyrant holdfast. And in, you know, Beowulf, Smog, not so much St. George's dragon because he wasn't guarding anything. Anyway, but it's used a lot now in popular culture where what the dragon is guarding is some sort of boon or treasure or gift, right? And that's why you have to defeat the dragon before you actually receive the boon. So the archetype is used quite often in association with the dragon. So Campbell says the following about it. The dragon to be slain by the hero is precisely the monster of the status quo. He is holdfast, not because he keeps the past, but because he keeps. So he innately becomes a representation of the unchanging and a destructive past force. That golden age is suddenly now toxic because he's made it so. It's not because it was toxic to begin with. It was never his treasure. It was a world treasure that he now happens to be hoarding. So that's why the Beowulf thing made so much sense to people back then, that the Golden Age was being guarded rather than shared. So that's one archetype. The other one was representing the reptilian brain. And this is Carl Jung, mostly. What Jung was saying was that, at least for the Western world, that the dragon is still very much representing the unconscious part of ourselves, the dark, unresolved, that beastly part of ourselves that we think hold us back. I mean, Christianity in itself is representing a domination over nature. And the further we get away from nature, the more divine we are. The way he puts it is great. It's like high functioning versus low functioning humans. It makes sense then that the dragon exists unconsciously around the world in that way, because we all recognize that in our evolution, there was a time when we were reptiles, right? All mammals came from reptiles. The dinosaurs lived for millions of years. They were the dominant species. We've just existed for a tiny, tiny portion of that time. And we have that DNA in us. So therefore, that dragon psychology of the reptilian brain operates all the time in us. And we're just more afraid of it than anything in the Western world. So that's why we're associating all these dark, hidden, mysterious aspects in the dragon brain, which is not what Eastern people believe, but definitely the Western world. 
I was going to say, did you know that there are reptilian humanoids that live at the center of our earth? Because that's a thing that people believe. Oh my God, tell me about it. What do they look like? (laughs) Well, actually, a lot of people say they pretend they like wear a human suit, but you can see it in their eyes and people have like celebrity photos. They're like, see, it's a reptilian. I'm like, yeah, we, we all kind of are, to be honest. Like what you said, like when I am feeling emotional, I call it being in my lizard brain where I'm like, okay, I can't just go and do something willy nilly. I have to think about it and I have to stop. And that's that higher and lower. I don't like how that's put, but I can see how that plays out psychologically and like symbolically. Absolutely. And I agree that it's not healthy to think of it so radical now, because back then I think it had to do with upholding your civilization as intelligent and worthy of godliness. So it meant separating the reptilian from the higher consciousness. And the further you got, the more divine you were. But now we're realizing that separation is now toxic. We're disconnecting from that natural aspect of ourselves. And it's making us sick. I mean, this is why we have the dystopian fear that technology is eventually going to just take over because those are all parts of ourselves that we're not willing to look into yet. It's part of the don't look at, don't confront layer. Which is mixed with a dash of dominate. Yes. It's a, like, it's what you said was perfectly right. It's, it's toxic. All of it. It doesn't work that way. We don't work that way as as a species. Talk (laughs) about real life stuff and dragons. Okay. It's all part of it. It makes so much sense, though, when he talks about the use of a dragon in that way. No wonder this is what their function is in story in our in the Western world stories and why now it's changing, because maybe maybe we're getting that. Maybe we're saying maybe the separation is too far. Let's reel it back. Let us confront that darkness. See what we can learn from it. It's not destroy the world. That's I mean, that's honestly if, if the dragon represents the shadow, which is all the all the stuff you don't want to look at, like you said. It's really simple. It really it really just is facing the shadow. I mean, it's very difficult, but the action itself is pretty simple, which is it's not destroy because that feeds the shadow. Whereas if you just face it and look at it head on and not be an asshole by like trying to keep it alive while it's half dead and take it to a village and it's like, I'm going to release it if you don't listen to me, you can solve all those issues so much easier just by being like, you're a dragon. I get it. Yeah, exactly. There's something useful there and important because you are part of me. Therefore, you're important, you know? Exactly. That was a way nicer way of putting it. I'm going to go with that. Mm-hmm. Those dark aspects that, you know, that creepy house, that's the one you should go into because that's the one you're afraid of. And typically, that's a good thing. I mean, use common sense. Don't be an idiot. But like... <laughs> If it's on fire, don't go in, you know, but <laughs> otherwise it's, it's, it's there to look scary so that you don't look at it so that you right. run away from it, the shadow mainly, and also in turn the dragon in some ways. Agreed. It's good stuff. Yeah. So that might come up again when we talk about the media and some other literature. So keep those in mind. 
So at this point, we finally leave the devil dragon trope behind because now we're traveling to modern America where dragons are remade into benevolent, fantastic, and sometimes humanistic companions. And we track this change through published female authors. <laughs> so once in America, and I think there was a few other authors who were playing with this idea, but the dragon reemerges benevolent, which is good because we hadn't seen that in the Western world yet. But it's for children. The target is actually children. And the dragon is more quirky, cute. They're more like pets than intelligent beings. And one example, 1948 children's book called My Father's Dragon, which Jen and I did not read, but we will mention it here. The author was Ruth Gannett. Gannett? And according to Wikipedia, most of the book is about a boy who's searching for a fierce evil dragon. But when he finds the dragon, he realizes that the dragon is actually very kind. And then the reluctant dragon, which was kind of like a vignette in a Disney movie. How do you do? Okay, describe this movie for me, Jen. This was 1941 Disney. It wasn't a movie per se. It was like a tour of Disney World or Disneyland. And then like intercut in it were these different shorts. And then intercut with that were other things that were like weird. Uh, there was a lot of smoking. The vignette of this dragon was very similar, which is that a boy during the time of the nights is told that there's a dragon that they have to defeat. And he goes and finds him. And of course, this dragon like can speak, knows poetry, has picnics. I mean, it's like the cutest thing, but very quirky, right? It's still quirky, cute, and innocent and uncomplex. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. What I concluded from that was that the medieval beast was being almost debunked in America in order to teach a child. There isn't always such thing as a good and evil, and there's something called like misjudging and accepting the odd or I don't know any of those like lessons were being taught using the dragon because obviously we hadn't changed our idea about the dragon until then is was what I sort of concluded what I mean would you agree yeah yeah it's like reading a storybook <laughs> I mean it, you know it, it's those kinds of morals where it's very simple laid out and basic not bad but just basic so yeah those were those are like subcategories before we get to our next source Jen is the one that brought up this next series as a possible source. Do you want to say why? Yeah, um, I have a friend who talked about this series a lot when I was telling her that we were talking about dragons a few months ago. This is quite a while ago, more than 20 books, and it spans decades. So she's agreed to talk with us about it and give us sort of the scope of this like epic and expansive world of the Dragons of Pern. So I think this is a good place for us to pause because we've only gone through like half of our sources. We want to say thank you to our two patrons, Jesse Martinez and Jeanette Martinez. If you want to contact us for any reason, you can email us at bitethepen at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at bitethepen. We're on Facebook. And if you don't mind, rate and review us on iTunes. That does us a, a, a big service. We would very much appreciate that. And we'll see you all in the next episode.